0: Coming up on Tech Nation, what does it mean to have a truly global press? Journalist Christy Hegrinus talks about the limitations and challenges of parachute journalism. Then you will remember Alex Pang from Rest, while you get more work done when you work less. He's starting as a regular contributor and tells us the four-day work week is doable. And Dr. Jim Brown from Direct talks about their clinical trials for alcohol-associated hepatitis, a condition for which there is no approved treatment. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes.
0: In 2010, I spoke with University of California, Berkeley, psychology professor Dacher Keltner and the Greater Good magazine editor Jason March about their book of essays, The Compassionate Instinct, The Science of Human Goodness. I asked them, is there any question as to what makes up the elements of human goodness?
2: Well, I think that from a scientific and also an ethical perspective, that's one of the hardest questions is, how do we define human goodness? How does it apply in different cultures and different contexts? And we take something of an ecumenical approach and we say it involves all kinds of emotions and strategies. Um, But you can think about one set of the elements of goodness being about enhancing the welfare of others. And all ethical, spiritual traditions have been writing about that. And that's the science we focus on. Things like compassion and altruism and uh, gratitude and the like and another very important and underappreciated part of human goodness is how humans have evolved and developed culturally these abilities to reconcile in the midst of conflict right how to forgive
0: horrendous conflict
2: right uh, just unimaginable conflict and that's a very big part of the story
0: when we talk about the elements of human goodness, we frequently hear compassion, empathy, altruism, but we also hear forgiveness, for example, gratitude, apology. All of these things seem to always include other people, one other person, a set of other people. Is goodness uh, have to do with more than yourself? I mean, is that part of the basic definition?
2: Uh, well, that's certainly, I think, the working definition that you know we've been operating by in the work that we've been doing with Greater Good Magazine and the Greater Good Science Center. It truly really is about the greater good, not just uh, satisfying your own personal desire or promoting your own personal happiness, but really achieving a, a deeper level of meaning and purpose and, and even happiness in your own life through the relationships that you cultivate with others and by promoting the welfare of others. Uh, so certainly, I think, by our definition and, and uh, by the logic of this book and, and of our magazine and our center, truly promoting goodness and, and living a good life is really about cultivating strong, meaningful, compassionate relationships with others.
0: Now, where does the science come in?
2: Well, I mean, these are uh, the question of human goodness is a, a deep scientific question, right? Where is it uh, located in the brain and in our genes, perhaps, and in our nervous systems? And so, what has happened in what really inspired our center and then the science that I do at Berkeley is there's really this new movement in evolution and neuroscience to begin to understand why we act altruistically. And that's in part because there are parts of the brain and parts of the nervous system that help you act pro-socially, right? Is that encoded in a particular set of genes that create those physiological systems? And we've discovered a little oxytocin gene, oxytocin receptor gene that maps to really empathetic behavior.
0: And oxytocin's and a hormone, right? It
2: is. It's a, a peptide that floats through your, um, your brain and your bloodstream that helps promote caring and trusting behavior. And there are genes that regulate those systems, and we're starting to map, inspired by this movement, some of those, those genetic markers.
0: Psychology professor Dacher Keltner and editor-in-chief Jason Marsh continue their work at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, which publishes The Greater Good magazine. While researching this segment, I noticed an item authored by contributor Brooke Anderson. It's entitled Daily Quarantine Questions, so relevant now with many of us sheltering in place. There are just six questions. What am I grateful for today? Who am I checking in on or connecting with today? What expectations of normal am I letting go of today? How am I getting outside today? How am I moving my body today? What beauty am I either creating, cultivating, or inviting in today? Greater Good Magazine can be found by Googling Greater Good Magazine. Not just Greater Good, but Greater Good Magazine. Or through greatergood.berkeley.edu. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Christy Hegrinus, the CEO of Global Press, about her vision of what it really means to have a global press. Then a new regular contributor, Alex Pang, tells us how a four-day work week is working for any number of companies all over the world. And Dr. Jim Brown, the CEO of Direct. Talks about how their drug candidate just may work for alcohol associated hepatitis, which currently has no approved treatment.
2: TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the
0: web at mindk.com. And now, Christy Hegrinus. Well, Christy, welcome to TechNation.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, there's been so much news in and around the Gaza Strip since the events of October 7th, all massively covered by the mainstream global news media. And familiar and and normally carefully styled newsroom anchors suddenly show up wearing these crumpled everyday clothes. Frankly, I want to say to them, you know, if you get the polyester cotton blend, it looks like it's ironed, but that would not that's not i think i think there's still styling going on i hate to make light of this but whether it's a massive news event or everyday news what is the footprint of global news media what does it look like
3: yeah it's a it's a great place to start so you know i think the events of the past you know year and a half with ukraine and now gaza really puts into sharp focus how media covers the world, and where that narrative needs to really expand. So I think for for us at Global Press, the mentality is really trying to find better, deeper local perspectives, and also finding ways to cover these communities comprehensively over time. So we're not solely parachuting in in moments of the ultimate crisis, but that we leave people with a foundation of really understanding world events and the consequences of ongoing actions. So, you know, I think all of the journalists who have been covering Ukraine and now Gaza are doing an extraordinary job and working under extraordinarily difficult conditions. In the future, I would love to see a model where the reporters of record from those communities are also of those communities. For me, I think that's where the beginnings of this really deep narrative change that we need to see in the world will stem from is when the journalists covering their communities are also the reporters of record in the moments of big global events.
0: Let's talk about parachute journalism, and let's go back to before the start of Global Press, your your nonprofit. And talk about that experience of being a parachute journalist in Nepal and why that was maybe not getting the story.
3: Yeah, so, you know, as a kid growing up, all I ever wanted to be was a foreign correspondent, right? Traveling the world, telling its stories. And when I got that opportunity, I was really young. I was in my early 20s and I was in Nepal uh, covering the Civil War. And prior to this assignment, it had never once occurred to me that I was not the right person to tell these stories. I just assumed that, of course, I was. These were my stories to go out and to get. And you know, I was in country for just a few days when some of the, the, just the perils of foreign correspondence really began to occur to me, parachute journalism in particular, uh, which is the particular brand of foreign correspondence that sends outsiders into global communities for very short periods of time, typically in times of crisis. And parachute journalists, you know, for all of their good intentions, often don't speak the language, don't have much social, historical, political context. And there's a lot of just logistical barriers in place that prevent you from getting the story. In my case, I did not speak Nepali. So I had a translator who was employed by the government who was translating all of my questions and then all of the answers. I wonder what went on. (laughs) (laughs) You, You very quickly realize that you are absolutely not in control of the accurate information that you would like to be. And so for me, it was really a matter of realizing, hey, I am not the right person to be telling those stories. And in fact, I was surrounded by incredible local journalists, local women in particular, who did have that capacity to tell real true stories that not only the world could benefit from, but also that people in Nepal could benefit from, right? That's one of the, I think, fundamental flaws of foreign correspondence is that it's fundamentally about people that it isn't for. So you end up with a real chasm between who you're reporting about and who that journalism is going to. So that was kind of the early inspiration for what later became Global Press.
0: In fact, you almost missed the real story.
3: I did. Yeah. So after being in the capital city for a little bit, I was in some more rural parts of the country. And I ended up uh, meeting this woman named Pratima, who lived in uh, a, a small rural village mostly occupied at the time by women and children and some elderly people. And it was in those conversations with Pratima where we got to talking about some health issues in the community and kind of the, the trek that some women uh, in the village were making to the local health posts on a regular basis. And she told me about something that she called love's disease. And I was like, Love's disease. I've like, never never heard of this before. What she ended up describing was women in the village becoming ill after their husbands who were working abroad would come to visit, right? And this trend is largely still accurate in Nepal today that a, a good portion of adult men work in India or they're migrant laborers in the Middle East. And it occurred to me in that moment that what Prathima was describing was not something called love's disease. It was it was HIV. And this was in 2004, when Nepal still claimed a near zero incidence of HIV, but there were also no testing facilities in the country. Uh, According to UNAIDS, at the time, there was like 700 cases ever documented in Nepal. And so... You know, in that moment, my my foreign correspondent brain was like, yes, here it is. Here's the story that I came here to tell. Now, all I have to do is sit down with these, you know, Nepali women and ask them about, you know, their sex lives with their husbands and if they think their husbands are visiting uh." (laughs) through
0: my interpreter, through my official government (laughs) interpreter. Yes, this is good. Uh,
3: And, you know, would you believe that they didn't want to talk to me about that? And so I ended up in a moment of just quite genuine frustration asking Pratima to do it handing her my notebook and my pen and saying like can you please ask them like these questions can you please get the information that they won't share with me and i think what was pretty remarkable about that experience is that she did she went out and she did it and i later had what she had written translated and it was absolutely a piece of journalism and it was kind of in that moment that i realized the model for international journalism can and should change. We have to shift the power dynamic away from sort of these global sort of superstar international reporters and to people with the proximity and the access to tell us the real true stories that local communities deeply need. And also these are the stories that can really advance global narrative change at the highest level so that we can all really better understand the world and our places in it.
0: Now, The idea is the development of local journalists who understand the story. And everyone has pretty much experienced, hey, the boss is coming around or very important so-and-so is visiting. So get things cleaned up. Put a smile on your face. And when journalists visit, and I have had this experience myself, this can happen. Things are very cleaned up. But the thing about local reporting is uh, nobody cleans up for you or can for long.
3: Yeah, I think there is a real, there is not only an unvarnished access to truth, there is also really a deep rapport and contextual understanding that can happen. Uh, I'll give you an example. We have a reporter in Zambia, her name's Prudence, and Prudence really specializes in She's a sex reporter, right? Which is not a thing you find a lot of in Zambia. She <laughs> no. She tells some extraordinary stories about women's, you know, bodily care, women's health care, just the cultural ritual, etc., and some of the consequences that has for women. And I firmly believe that she's the only person on earth who can tell these stories because she speaks six languages, She can deeply connect with these local women from a place of lived experience as well as deep respect, not the outsider's judgment of like, oh, you shouldn't do that, or I think that's weird. She can deeply connect with these sources. And then she has the training and the platform through global press to tell those stories in a really dignified and precise way. And I think that you see that playing out across the world, that when local reporters become the journalists of record we truly have the opportunity to see the world outside of the sort of war, poverty, disaster, disease lens that media sort of thrives on.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn and my guest today is Christy Hegrenis, the CEO of Global Press, a journalist and Ashoka Fellow. She is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. We're talking about her book, byline, how local journalists can improve the global news industry and change the world. Well, as a journalist, I know what byline means, but not everybody knows what a byline is.
3: So the byline is those uh, few very important words at the top of the story that tells you who wrote and reported the story. And I think too often in international news, The byline of the story doesn't necessarily reflect the local person who was deeply responsible for that storytelling. It's still really, really common for mainstream and legacy news organizations to use what we call fixers which are local journalists who set up the interviews, you know, sometimes write the drafts of the story, but often don't get credit for, uh, for their work. So I called the book Byline because I think it is really representative of the vision for the future of international journalism that I see, where the local journalists, the people with that proximity and access become our storytellers of record. And we all get accustomed to wanting and demanding bylines that are more from local journalists.
0: Okay, so now let's go back here. You figured out that, whoops, I can't get this story. I can't really, <laughs> truly, as a journalist one-on-one, not break the, the chain of of uh, the provenance, as we would say in the museum world the, the uh, or the art world, but the chain of information. Am I, is it getting asked? Is it getting answered? Do I have the context? And you say you've got journalist number one here that you've found. This is really good, local journalist number one. And so you, how do you possibly go from there to where you are today? Take us on that journey.
3: So I left Nepal uh, shortly after that experience with Pratima, and I moved to San Francisco. I just finished my master's degree at NYU, and I took a job as a feature writer at a, a newspaper in San Francisco. And it was a really cool job. Actually, so much of the internal structure of global press is actually modeled off of that structure. But, you know, I just couldn't get this idea out of my head. I couldn't get this idea out of my head that international journalism was broken. And I think that at, you know, the very (laughs) wise age of 25, I was full of the gumption that told me that I was the person who could fix it.
0: (laughs) It's a good age because you don't know a lot then.
3: (laughs) (laughs) My mom often says I was young enough and dumb enough to do what I did next, which was quite literally quit my job and walk across the street to a bookstore. And I bought a NOLO guide on how to start a nonprofit. And here we are almost 18 years later where Global Press has trained hundreds of women around the world. And we currently operate more than 40 independent news bureaus in some of the world's least covered places like World Democratic Republic of Congo or Northern Haiti or the Arkhangai province in Mongolia. So, you know, I think over these 18 years, there was certainly a big period of trial and error, right? But also a real commitment to this idea that all local journalists truly need is training and access to a credible global platform where they can, in fact, become the journalists of record. So at Global Press, we think a lot about what are the current barriers to entry that keep these local journalists out of the global media system. Across almost every media market on Earth, women are underrepresented, right? So that became the first core focus of Global Press. All of our reporting spots are reserved for women and people who identify as women, and From there, you know, we continue to break down what are the barriers to entry. At Global Press, English is not a requirement to work here. We operate our workplace in seven different languages every day because the ability to speak English is one of the biggest gatekeepers, keeping incredible local journalists out of mainstream and legacy newsrooms. So we really look at what are the barriers to entry that are keeping exceptional local journalists kind of stifled where they are. And we work really, really hard to create incredible opportunities for them to tell really powerful stories. And one of the ways that we do that is by totally shifting traditional power dynamics in terms of who decides what is news. Sitting here in Washington, D.C., I don't make assignments. We have a non-assignment policy. I never say, hey, from my chair in Washington, D.C., I know today what the biggest story in Zimbabwe is. I have Zimbabwean reporters for that, and we trust them implicitly to really tell us the stories that matter most to local people and will most advance global understanding. So the entire organization is built to really topple some of the power dynamics, stereotypes and trends in international media and just really build it back differently.
0: Now, I have to say the structure is not that much different from publication and And news service. You've got the the Global Press Journal, which you publish online. You've got the Global Press News Service, which delivers stories. And you also have a Global Press Style Guide. And I have to tell you, if you think everybody's just out there writing and saying and doing what, everybody's got standards. Everybody's got this. Now break it down for us. What's on the journal? What's on the Global Press News Service? And what's in the Global Press Style Guide?
3: Yes. All uh, super important features. And there's one additional one, which is the Global Press Institute. This is sort of the fundamental entry point for reporters coming into global Global Press. That's where we train reporters in our style and our standards of, you know, dignified, precise reporting, accuracy, deep, deep fact checking. So everyone comes in through Global Press Institute, They're trained, and then we employ 100% of our graduates to work long-term for our publication, Global Press Journal. At the journal, we have a couple of just really core foundations. One is that non-assignment policy I mentioned. The second is we're real believers in high-quality employment of journalists. So... what. (laughs)
0: <laughs> who has a job few people in journalism anymore
3: <laughs> right and it's so easy to really lament the poor quality of journalism in our world without really taking stock of the fact that most journalism jobs are actually quite poor quality employment so we come at this in a variety of different ways including our duty of care program working really hard to make sure that our journalists are safe and secure not just not dead or not arrested but actually like safe and well, and they have access to, you know, mental health services and other things that they need to truly thrive in the profession over time. And then the distribution piece is really important, right? As I mentioned, um, we work in seven languages every day. So reporters write and report in their local language. And then we work with translators and interpreters to also produce an English language version of that product. And then we distribute our stories for free across the world. We have partners like teeny tiny local rural radio stations in the Congo and PBS NewsHour here in the United States. So we really work hard to get our stories, exposure to our stories really maximized. Uh, And then we also do a lot of targeted reach, making sure that, you know, key populations of people around the world get access to these stories. And then, you know, we are able to really just sit back and watch the world change as people have greater access to information about people in places that they didn't before.
0: It just seems so easy (laughs) when you say it like that. Uh, Here's, here's one great example that I, I, I saw in the book. You pay your journalist, obviously, and in today's world of electronic payments, that seems so easy. Uh, but I'm thinking of Zimbabwe here. Tell us what happened there.
3: Yeah, you know, um, getting salaried payments to reporters across this many places is actually one of the biggest challenges in, you know, day to day operations at Global Press. Just from a logistic standpoint, you throw in uh, what happened in 2018 in Zimbabwe, which I write a lot about in the book, where overnight the Zimbabwean government really just changed u s dollars so citizens at the time had access to u s dollars in their bank account, uh, and just overnight the government said, You no longer own u s dollars we 've converted it into this new random <laughs> currency type called r t s g and um you know people lost their life savings
0: they took their they literally took their bank accounts and changed them overnight it 's one for one it doesn 't say in our case it would not say u s anymore it would say r t s g that's right and these, this is money you've sent them and they have from wherever they have it. Every, everyone in the country, you know, they're no longer dollars.
3: That's right. And at the time, the Zimbabwean government was claiming that the, the ratio exchange was one-to-one. Uh, in fact, in a very short period of time later, it was, it was about 900 to one. Uh, so for people who, you know, had their life savings in, in banks, it was reduced to almost nothing. And so when that happened in 2018, we were sort of faced with two challenges at the same time. One was, you know, on the phone with reporters saying like, hey, we don't have any money. We got to, you know, find a different way to get access to our salaries. And two, really trying to cover it in in a way that, you know, we had, we had a lot of trouble getting the attention of international news markets um, on this story. And one of the things we heard repeatedly was, oh, you know, this is too complicated. Whatever's happening there is too complicated. And one of the points that I make in the book, which turned out to be one of the more controversial <laughs> statements in the book that I wasn't necessarily anticipating was, You know, if something like that had happened in a country or in a place where we had been preconditioned to believe that people in those in that place deserved wealth, it would have been a story right? If that had happened in France or Canada, the world would have been outraged, right? Now, years later, economists are unafraid to call it theft, right? Absolute theft on the part of the Zimbabwean government where they stole from their citizens. But at the time, when we were, you know, explaining the story, pitching the story out to international news partners across the board, people were like, that's too, that's too complicated. And I think it's a really great example of how legacy and international, you know, major news players really missed what was The biggest story on the continent for a significant period of time because they didn't have access to local reporters who would really be able to break down and explain what an extraordinary occurrence it was when it happened.
0: Well, we're talking about money, and this reminds me that you cite five essentials for journalist security cash, got to have cash, protective gear, safe transport, the ability to opt out and foresight. Let's talk about those.
3: So at Global Press, one of the the central components to how we do work every single day revolves around what we call duty of care.
0: I've been speaking with Christy Hegrinus, the CEO of Global Press, about her book, Byline, how local journalists can improve the global news industry and change the world. We'll talk more after a break. Both whole Technation programs and biotech-only interviews are available wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, how about a four-day work week? New regular contributor Alex Pang tells us how it can work and progress with alcohol-associated hepatitis. Stay with us. back. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Christy Hegrinus, the CEO of Global Press. Her book is Byline, How Local Journalists Can Improve the Global News Industry and Change the World. Well, we're talking about money, and this reminds me that you cite five essentials for journalist security. Cash, got to have cash, protective gear, safe transport the ability to opt out and foresight. Let's talk about those.
3: So at Global Press, one of the the central components to how we do work every single day revolves around what we call duty of care. And duty of care essentially speaks to the newsroom's responsibility to work in solidarity with journalists uh, for their safety, right? It is all too common today for newsrooms to say like, oh yeah, that seems dangerous, keep yourself safe, or maybe you should take a training or... Good luck to you. I'll reimburse you when you get back. <laughs> and so for us, duty of care is all about thinking through how do we create processes and procedures where the newsroom and the reporter can really work together to find security in solidarity. And so towards the the latter half of the book I really started to break down how easy this actually is. I think we're largely conditioned to believe that journalist security is extraordinarily high risk and extraordinarily difficult to manage or to mitigate. And it is true that there are always going to be some, you know, really hard scenarios. But in reality, we know that the vast majority of risks that a journalist is going to face, you can mitigate in advance. I often uh, consult with news organizations who, you know, are in a difficult period of time in one location or another. And one of the first things I say is you got to change your policy on payment. If you trust someone enough to have a byline in your publication, you got to give them cash up front because the difference between having a hundred bucks in your pocket could literally be life and death. Um, So, you know, that is, it's so obvious. It's so straightforward. It's so easy to do. Um, But each one of those five things that you list, I think really reflects what I hope is a shift in the industry to put the journalist first and to really break down these complicated notions of security to really make them palatable and implementable so that journalist security can be forefront. And I think that ability to opt out is is number one, right? We still largely work in an industry where people are penalized for opting out of stories or for prioritizing their mental health. Um, We saw a huge shift in the right direction during COVID after journalists covered what amounted to be a mass casualty event for years at a time. We did see some, you know, journalists and news organizations really step up and start to prioritize the journalist's whole self-security, including mental and emotional well-being. But there's still a really long way to go.
0: Well, I was thinking that that you could have a motto that says, if we say it's a story, it's a story.
3: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely it's so true and often there's this like character of the journalist right that like you love burning buildings and you can't wait to put yourself in you know in the you know into bodily harm but in reality you know i think what i've found in doing this for almost two decades is most journalists actually Uh, are motivated more by concepts of justice and access to information than they are risk, right? Risk oftentimes is an undesirable outcome or byproduct of the profession that if we let reporters really lead the way in declaring their own risk tolerance and telling the stories they believe matter most, the kind of coverage of the world that we get transforms dramatically. I'm thinking about one of my reporters in Mexico who, um, You know, she she covers arts and culture and Mars Mexico is one of the most like beautiful and important places I think people could possibly read about because it's so different than the, you know, immigration cartel driven narrative that we get from everywhere else. So when we really allow the reporter to take the lead and to control the stories that become the news, we all benefit.
0: Well, Christy, thank you so much for joining me and I hope you come back and talk to us again.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My guest today is Christy Hagenes. The website for the Global Press Institute is globalpress.co. The Global Press Journal is available at globalpressjournal.com. And Global Press News Services can be found at globalpressnewsservices.com. Her book is Byline, How Local Journalists Can Improve the Global News Industry and Change the World, It's published by Advantage Books. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Given the popular response we've received to Alex Pang's earlier interviews, he's agreed to start speaking with us on a regular basis. We start today with the four-day work week. Well, Alex, welcome back to Tech Nation.
4: Well, thanks, Moore. It's great to be here.
0: Now, you've been working on something lately that I think sounds great for me. (laughs) I don't know how it is for organizations. You've been talking about the four-day week. What is it?
4: So the four-day work week is something it's a movement that has been building up for or the last few years and the core idea is that you know with advances in technology mobile devices you know collaboration tools everybody's actually gotten a lot more productive But there's also a lot more busy work in our days, right? Studies tell us that the average person uh, now loses something like two hours a day to overly long meetings and technology-driven distractions and or to poor processes. And so the idea is that if you can eliminate that stuff you can actually do in four days what we're currently doing in five. And so I've been working with, you know, everyone from restaurants to tech startups to hospitals to sort of put this into place and sort of to also, since it's a new thing, to measure the benefits, right? To see what kind of impact it has on people's lives, on how they work, how they feel about their work and how it affects companies and their, you know, whether that's their bottom lines or their culture and their, or their resilience. One of the things that four day week companies are of, uh, do is use a shorter work week kind of as an incentive to bring people back into the office a couple days a week so that everyone is able to come together And to do the work that really benefits from being in the company of others, you know, standing around a table, looking at a prototype or plans and being able to talk through those things in ways that are still really hard to do through, you know, through a little screen.
0: It's almost like at the beginning of the pandemic, all of these uh, tools got a lot better, but also we all knew each other. We had been working together in person, so it was a little hard to say how well or how badly they worked simply because we already knew each other. But now, as we're adding different people, people who have never met in person, they can't possibly work as well as they did when we, we went strictly in real life, face-to-face, And online, right? You
4: know, that is a really good question. And I think that the literature on it is kind of mixed because, you know, on one hand, I think it's absolutely the case that there are things that you can learn about people and ways that you can work with them when you're, you know, sort of sitting in a room and you can read body language and you can see if people are comfortable with an idea. You know, you can, there's just, Uh, uh, things become frictionless in a way that is difficult to replicate on screen. At the same time, you know, four day week global where I now work has people who are, I think living in six different time zones. Um, I've met exactly one of the 10 or so people who I work with sort of in person. And so would we would certain things be easier if we were all together? Probably on the other hand, are we able to have a kind of global reach to be able or sort of to talk to people in different parts of the world and to be able to or sort of or of thanks to you know or sort of the miracles of collaborative tools and sort of you know and and free video? To work together in ways that would have been really difficult, you know, even a decade ago. Also, yes. So, I mean, I do think that there is, but you know, I do worry some that you know, uh, that people who are just starting out in their careers, you know, people in their twenties who, you know, for whom going going into the office used to be where you didn't just learn how to work, but you also kind of learned how to be right? It was about learning how to be a certain kind of professional, absorbing the craft that you don't pick up in books or, and you can't just pick up from a spreadsheet or project management tools. That is, I think, you know, a lot of people worry that that is something that is going to be lost. And I think that actually is or of a legitimate concern, that there is sort of tacit knowledge, that there is craft knowledge that we risk losing if we have, you know, if we go to or of all remote kinds of work.
0: Now, the question is, I mean... While you're working on the four day work week, I'm working on the three day weekend, you know so i'm looking at i'm looking at gee can we put that all into one four day work week that are continuous, and which four days because I know uh, frequently I will interview people here in San Francisco, I will interview them and they're in Australia or they're in India, or they're in New Zealand. And if it's the afternoon here, it's the next morning there. And it works great. Mm -hmm. Only that means if it's a Thursday here, they got to go to work on Friday. So how do you decide what what days work?
4: You know, companies usually will uh, let the market decide. So there were some industries where... Fridays are already kind of a quiet day or maybe not a lot happens on Mondays and so the kind of the rhythm of the industry and the expectations of your clients already kind of set a pattern during the week that um sort of determines which day you can take off in other cases if you are, let's say, a retail establishment and you know, you got foot traffic coming in five days a week or you're a government office, you might do something like have two teams where you know, one is on Monday through Thursday, the other is Tuesday through Friday. And so as far as the rest of the world is concerned, you know, it's business as usual, even though everybody inside the company is able to or enjoy a four-day week. And so, you know, and you even see different parts of the same company adopting different sorts of schedules. So in a software company, the developers, the software engineers might be all over a four-day week where everyone's got Friday off and you you no longer have Friday software commits. So you've got bugs, bug reports coming in over the weekend. But the customer service team who you know is always wants to make that next sale or respond to the next customer. They're going to work or wrote a rota system on five days, and you know, uh, and everybody makes it sort of. Uh, everybody though is able to make it work. And then internationally, some you do have some companies that where you know the. Um, Australia office actually is open Monday through Thursday, and the New York office is open Tuesday through Friday. And so they actually do overlap.
0: Well, as president of the new three-day weekend uh, uh, society, uh, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> and Alex, <laughs> thanks so much for coming in. Look forward to our next chat. Oh, uh, thank you, or Always a pleasure. Dr. Alex Pang's most recent book is Rest, While You Get More Work Done When You Work Less. More information is available on his website, strategy.rest. Well over 100,000 people each year check into emergency rooms with alcohol-associated hepatitis. It's not surprising that during the pandemic, this number jumped. There is no approved treatment, and frankly, the prognosis is grim. Dr. Jim Brown is the president and CEO of DIRECT, when I spoke with him, Direct's potential treatment for this condition had just entered its Phase two b clinical trial. And now, Dr. Jim Brown.
5: It's a big problem. And unfortunately, during the pandemic, we've seen an increase in the United States of alcohol consumption uh, that's about 30%. And this has been associated with, as well, um, hospitalizations due to alcohol have increased by about 50%. And the most common reason for this is a, a disease called alcohol-associated hepatitis.
0: Mostly when I think of hepatitis, I think of hepatitis C or hepatitis B. You've got a virus. You've got This is entirely caused by drinking alcohol?
5: It is. It's an inflammatory process. Actually, it's much more than that. a very involved process. But it's an acute assault on your liver that's brought on most typically by binge drinking. And uh, and the patients present with uh, with fever. They have yellowing of the whites of their eyes, known as jaundice. They're tired. They'll often have nausea and vomiting, and they always have a history of recent heavy alcohol consumption or uh, binge drinking.
0: Is there a particular age group that's that's targeted here? You know, it's
5: it's interesting. There are about one hundred thirty thousand hospitalizations per year for uh, for alcohol associated hepatitis, which we abbreviate as AH in the United States. And about half those people are between the ages of 40 to 60. Many of them will have cirrhosis. But it's really interesting, and this population is on the rise, there are more than 20% are younger people. There are people in their 20s and 30s. They don't have cirrhosis. But there is just more of a culture out there in, uh, in the millennial generation of going out and drinking on Wednesdays and Thursday nights, and it, it can add up to some people in some circumstances. <laughs>
0: Is there a standard of care for this? Is there a way to deal with this once they're in the hospital?
5: Unfortunately, there really isn't, and it's a deadly disease. The mortality of patients with AH is 26% at one month, and it's about 30% at three months. And there is no approved therapy today. They will use abstinence, of course. Standard of care will be supportive care. Sometimes they'll use steroids, but they've been shown not to improve survival, And in fact, unfortunately, the treatment for AH has not improved uh, since the 1970s. In, In the last 50 years, there's been no change in the survival of these patients.
0: Now, from Durek's perspective, what actually goes wrong in the body?
5: You know, we've all heard about DNA. You know, it's the molecule in the nucleus of all the cells in your body. It's effectively the blueprint of your body. You inherit the DNA from your mother and your father. You have the same blueprint in every cell in your body, but think about all the different cell types tissues that you have, you know, you've got hair, skin, muscle, bone. And that's because the epigenome allows for this DNA blueprint to be read. But if you look in the nucleus of a cell, only about 5% of what's in there is the DNA. The other 95% is the epigenome, which is effectively the brains of the operation that allows those genes to be expressed. Back when I was in school, we were taught that the Uh, the structures inside the nucleus cells were called histones, and they were there for structural basis. And now we know they're actually way more than that. They are (laughs) driving the reading of the blueprint, as it were.
0: They're not just holding up the roof.
5: (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. And in fact, with a disease like AH and with many other diseases, you get dysregulation of this epigenome. And so you have certain genes turned on and turned off, and, and then you can move the cell towards... Unfortunately, disease states can move the cells towards death and, uh, and uh, you know, the outcomes that you get with a disease like AH.
0: So when you say dysregulation, you mean normally the, the 95%, the, the epigenome there is operating on the 5% DNA. Everything's working out great. But when there's a problem, it starts going awry. It's either not working or it's doing things it shouldn't do. And that's called dysregulation. That's absolutely
5: right. And we, until now, have known very little about it. We do use um, medicine that changes the epigenome in the field of oncology to kill cancer cells. What you do there is you go in and you disrupt the epigenome and the cells will die. But with uh, what we're doing at Direct, we have an opportunity to actually repair the epigenome, to bring it back more towards normal. And that has allowed for a, a greater understanding of uh, of this component of biology and medicine. It's fascinating.
0: I'm assuming with alcoholic hepatitis that your liver isn't working anymore. So we're talking about this dysregulation inside liver cells. So uh, when this goes awry, we're talking about liver cells that aren't functioning anymore. And then I guess your liver isn't functioning anymore? That's
5: absolutely true. And it starts with the liver and then unfortunately goes to other organs. But just you know, to focus on the liver cells themselves right now, the literature has uh, told us that what happens in these AH patients is the epigenome becomes dysregulated. And uh, through a process called hypermethylation, it's very specific. We don't have to get into that. But the reality of it is these major pathways in these cells are shut down. And so a lot of genes are turned off that shouldn't be, and genes are turned on that shouldn't be. And you end up going down the process of cell death and dysregulation, which not only damages the liver, but eventually extends to the kidneys and the lungs as well and get multi-organ damage.
0: Now, I know it Direct, you're working and have been working for some time with a molecule called DUR928. What is that? What does it do? How does it relate to AH? Yes, drni 28 it's a
5: naturally occurring regulatory molecule that's found in all of us, actually. In fact, we've looked at it in uh, in many different species of mammals, from uh, things as small as mice and hamsters all the way up to monkeys, dogs, pigs, and humans, and we all have the same concentration in our body. It's fascinating in that it is made in association with the mitochondria. It travels to the nucleus, and it helps maintain homeostasis, as it were, of the epigenome and cellular function, not, of the liver, not only of the liver, but of many, many other cells. So what we've been able to do with the ur 928 is show in a number of cell culture models and a number of, uh, of other models that it's able to restore function of the cells. And we've also now been able to use it in AH patients and show that it improves the function of uh, these patients as well.
0: Now, you've gone through phase one, we know it's safe for humans, and you did a 2A, that initial study, and according to my notes, 19 patients, just to try to see what happened. What what was that study about? What did you do with those 19 patients?
5: Well, first off, as you know, we've been talking about AH is a horrible disease, 26% of AH patients die within a month, and 30% die within three months. In our first study, as you talked about, we had 19 patients, and they all lived over that 28-day study. And I think what's equally as impressive as that is 14 of these 19 patients left the hospital within three days of their first dose and their only dose of eight. So that speaks to some of the epigenomic component of this. We're restoring the function of the epigenome of the nucleus of these cells, just a single intervention in 14 to 19 patients. And if you think about it, most of the time, those patients would be in the hospital for weeks and unfortunately, a third of them would never go home. And in this case, 14 to 19 walked home before day four. So what's your next, your phase 2B, I guess, would be the next one. What are you doing there? It's a trial in 300 patients um, with severe AH. We're testing two different doses of 928, and we're also testing against uh, the standard of care, which is you know supportive care of these patients, 100 patients per group.
0: And the endpoint of this trial will be survival at 90 days. Now, no one signs up for this trial in advance. No one, no one says I'm going to go on <laughs> no. a binge, but I want to get all the paperwork out of the way. Um, and yet, these are extremely sick patients. How do they? How do you find them? And how do they How are they able to give their consent to this uh, entry?
5: Uh, that's a really good point. You know, we have explored the potential of DOR-928 in a number of acute diseases, things like sepsis or acute kidney disease. And we can talk more about these later. But the reason we selected AH for our first indication is because unlike a a stroke, for example, where if uh, I had a stroke and I had a twin brother who had a stroke and there was a 12 hour delay between myself getting in there and my brother getting there 12 hours earlier, he's going to have a better outcome just because of supportive care. So you you have a lot of patient variability in, in stroke trials and sepsis trials and kidney trials. And you see these with with you know very difficult uh, paths to approval for drugs in these areas. With AH, the disease is a very insidious disease, and, and the people die over a month or two months or three months, but it's a very slow process. So that's the, uh, the circumstance that is different with AH. It's a slow, insidious process that if one can intervene, potentially one can make a difference and save someone's life.
0: Now, what other diseases or conditions are caused by these kind of problems with the epigenome? That might be helped with DUR nine two eight.
5: Yes, the diseases we're looking at, and where we have tested this in various models and shown that it helps, is in in diseases like acute kidney injury, or in diseases like sepsis, where you have endotoxin, you know, super high amounts of endotoxin, or things like overdose of of Tylenol or acute pancreatitis. These are all cases where 8 has been shown to work. In some of these cases, we don't know yet whether there's hypermethylation. So this is a case where the drug is maybe leading the uh, the, the way forward in the, in the path for under, better understanding of the disease. It's it's kind of a hand-in-glove thing. We, we understand in some cases there's hypermethylation. We can move in with DOR and 928 and help treat the epigenome. In other cases, we know DOR 28 928 helps in this, at least in this animal model, should be able to help in humans. And then we'll go in there and then find out whether or not there is hypermethylation.
0: I think this is fascinating. Usually we think there's a condition. Let's give the person the drug. Let's see if it cures what it is you're saying. Sometimes just giving the drug gives us information about how the whole system works. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a,
5: this is a very different uh, uh way of thinking about medicine. Uh, you know, I was raised and and, and and went through school during a time when when drugs were much simpler. You would simply have a drug like a like a statin, for example, that that inhibits one of the enzymes in making cholesterol. So if you have high cholesterol, you give this drug, it reduces the production of, you know, of, of cholesterol at that one point, but you get buildup of of, you know, predecessor molecules and you get side effects and all the rest of these kind of things. With DR928, we're changing the whole set point uh, of a cell. And uh, because of that, which is another fascinating thing about this, we've really not seen much at all in the way of side effects with this drug in the most seriously ill patients one can think of. And, uh, And that's been fascinating. It's been a very safe drug to use.
0: Now, very interesting for me is that you're a doctor of veterinary medicine, not an MD, not a PhD in microbiology or all the normal folks that walk through my door here. Um, Why is a background in veterinary medicine a good thing here?
5: I think it's, for me, it's worked out really well, obviously. It's been a great career and I've really enjoyed it. I, I still have my license to practice veterinary medicine here in California and I enjoy doing that. But the reality of it is it gives me, I think, really good insight because I, I can look at animal models of certain disease states and uh, and look and see how it might apply to human medicine. And uh, and we're all, you know, we like to think of ourselves in such a different way as, as humans, but we're all animals, right? Humans are, are you know, five to six foot primates typically walking around, uh, you know, and with veterinary medicine to get the great opportunity to be able to understand the the physiology and and disease circumstances uh, of primates, but also of, you know, horses and ruminants and uh, dolphins and all the different kinds of species that are out there. So it's a, it's a, it's a great multiple, uh, you know, approach to, uh, to disease. But, yeah.
0: Well, I really appreciate you coming in, Tim. I hope you'll come back and see us again.
5: Well, thank you so much, Moira. I really appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to it at uh, any time.
0: Direct's Phase 2B clinical trial is now complete with what Dr. Brown describes as compelling results. They anticipate having their end of phase two meeting with the FDA shortly and to begin discussions on the design for the phase three trial. Dr. Jim Brown is the president and CEO of Direct. More information is available at direct.com. That's D-U-R-E-C-T, direct.com. For TechNation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: TechNation and its regular segment, BiotechNation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at TechNation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Landcourt.